During the Holocaust and the time leading up to the Holocaust, the Star of David was used as a symbol and a special badge that all the Jews were required to wear. The government required that they wear it or suffer the consequences, which were severe. And apparently this wasn't the first time they had to do such a thing. There were um, numerous times uh, throughout history that this was required. And the reason they were forced to wear it was in order to single them out, to separate them from the rest of society, to make it so that people could easily identify them as Jewish. Now the badge, though it was intended to be a badge of shame, and it was intended to cause division because their rulers were evil, it was nonetheless a means of identification. People could look at a crowd and they would be able to spot the badge and say, she is Jewish. The badge she was wearing identified her. This morning, as we continue our lessons on holiness, we want to pose the question, what is our badge? Now, I don't mean a badge of shame. I don't mean something that someone else is forcing us to put on. I am talking about what is it that we get up and we put on every day and we wear that sets us apart, that separates us from the rest of society, that makes it so that people can look and say, aha, she is a Christian. This morning, we want to ask, what do the holy wear? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians 3. We read this passage last week. We're going back again. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. All right, now skip to verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its, of its creator. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, now this morning, we are going to go astray a bit from the book. Now, if you did your homework, hopefully you read the chapter that talked about the five graces that we have been given to help us pursue holiness. We are going to postpone teaching part of that until next week. And then we're even going to delve further into all of that next semester. Now, that's coming. This morning, I want us to finish what we started last week. And so we're going to start with a review point. Your first point on your paper is this. Number one, the pathway to holiness is a glorious exchange in that sinful desires and habits are rejected and exchanged for Christ-like graces and actions. All right, that's from last week. And we said that was a fancy way of saying that the pathway to holiness is putting off, it's a combination of putting off and putting on. 
Okay, we're putting off the flesh, we're putting on Jesus. All right, and I have a good verse for that on your paper. Now, last week we talked about the mortification part, the putting to death part. This week we're going to put, talk about the putting on part. And that is also from this Colossians passage. Now, before we talk about what we're to put on, let's start with how it is we're even able to do that in the first place. And we see that in this passage. All right, first of all, notice verse 10. Verse 10, it says, and have put on the new self. You might want to underline that. And then again, we read in verse 12, the same expression, put on then. Two times we see that expression, put on. And in the original Greek, that was a word that was used to put on clothing, to dress yourselves. All right, now I want you to notice verse 10, the phrase is past tense. It says you have put on on. You have been clothed. You have been dressed, which then you come to verse 12, and there is this consequential command now. It's telling you, put on then. So dress yourselves. And, and this should sound familiar because it's exactly what we've been talking about with holiness. All right, notice I've attempted to do that in the boxes on your paper. Your first box, it tells us at salvation, you, have, you were clothed in Christ. All right, you were dressed in Christ. That's past tense. That would be the same as your positional holiness that we've talked about. And that's something that's done for you. All right. And then you have the putting on the box about putting on Christ. That's something that you do. All right. That's a command. And that would be equivalent to the practical holiness that we've talked about. Okay. So if you have been made holy, you're to pursue holiness. If you have been dressed in Christ, you are to put on Christ. Now that brings us to our next point. No, it didn't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, we pointed out the last time, the pathway to holiness is a combination. It is putting off, it is putting on. You've got to have both because they go together. All right? They are connected because in practice, we're going to put off the flesh by putting on Christ. All right? We're able to say no to the flesh. We're able to strike it with a sword, utterly destroy, leave no, destroy, uh, leave no survivors. We're able to do that by putting on Christ. All right, so here's our next point. Number two, we put on Christ so that we may properly deal with our flesh and put Jesus on display. This passage is going to give us a more detailed look at what it means to put on Christ. Now, last week, we talked about how we are to be radically violent with our flesh. We said that we're to be telling our flesh no. But holiness, remember, it's a glorious exchange. So what are we to be telling, what are we to be saying yes to? All right, this, this passage is going to tell us. It's going to tell us what we are to put on. And remember, what we put on, that's what people see. This is going to be on display. All right, now here we go, verse 12. Verse 12 tells us, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All right, we're going to talk about these five things. Now, notice they're not five separate things. They're connected. They all flow together and in and out of each other. Uh, Legan Duncan says this. He says they are like circles which are interlocked. They're not separate things that have nothing to do with one another. But if you have one principle, the others naturally flow. All right? Now, these are not the only virtues we are to put on. But, hear me, these are the essence 
These are the essence of what we are to be wearing so that we are separate and singled out from the rest of the world. Okay, this, right, this is our badge. All right, let's take some of these apart. I want us to um, take a closer look at each one. All right, first of all, we are to put on compassion. Or compassion. Some of your versions may say tender mercies. Now, if something is tender, it's, it's tender to touch. It's sensitive to the touch. We are to be sensitive. We're to be sensitive to the hurts and the needs of others. We're to have pity on the suffering of others. Now, all of, all of us know what it's like. You, you see something on TV or Facebook or something that's sad news, and you feel, you feel pity. You feel sad about it. Okay, but when the Bible is using the word compassion or mercy, it is talking about an emotion that leads to action. All right? That, that's the difference. You don't just feel pity. You do something about it. Now, I want to give you a definition for this. It is by Lawrence... Richards, and this is number three on your paper. It says, compassion is a call to care enough to become involved and to help by taking some action that will set others' lives on a fresh new course. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 9. Matthew 9:36. We're going to see this. <clears throat> This is talking about Jesus. Matthew 9, 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. All right, the NAS says that they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus had compassion on them. You'll, if you continue reading, you'll see that he does something. He either feeds them or he heals them, but his compassion always leads to action, right? That's the pattern that you're going to see in Scripture. Now, I want to ask you something. Uh, would you describe the people that are around you as sheep without a shepherd? Do you know anyone that fits that description? Sheep without a shepherd, they are, they, they could be lonely, they could be depressed, they could be discouraged, they could be anxious, they could be fearful. That's, that's how people feel when, when they're, they see themselves or, or are feeling like sheep without a shepherd. And it's within this context that Paul says, put on compassion, put it on. You live in a hurting world. You are surrounded with hurting people. Put on compassion. You're loved. You're chosen. You're holy. You put it on. All right. Now, why is this such a big deal to God? Because he is compassionate. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and our needs, and he wants a lost world to know that. And so he says, you display that. You imitate me. You show the world that you are mine by being compassionate. Put it on. All right, next. Kindness. Now, what is kindness? I'm going to give you a definition. Number four on your paper. Kindness is the friendly and helpful spirit, spirit which seeks to meet the needs of others through kind deeds. All right? And it's going to flow from compassion. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, if you were to do a study, if you were to go back and look up the word kindness in the Old Testament, you're going to see some things. First of all, it's often 
you'll see the word loving kindness. If you're using the um, ESV, you're going to see the word steadfast love. But if, if you were to study, go through and look up kindness in your Old Testament, you're going to see some things. You're going to see that it's displayed in all different kinds of ways. You might have someone that gives someone a gift and it's called kindness. Or someone that makes, gives someone provision. Or someone that grants them a request. Those are just the different ways that kindness is displayed as you go throughout the Old Testament. Now, often, not always, but often people showed kindness because they had received it. You'll have um, a king might say, oh, I want to show kindness to this nation because they have been kind to Israel. Or you might see David and he'll say, oh, I want to show kindness to this man because he was kind to me. Okay, but then you get to the book of Colossians. And Colossians says, oh, oh, beloved, you are to put on kindness whether people are kind to you or not. You are to display the kindness of God. You are to put it on display to a lost world. There's a story about St. Augustine on how he went to hear a famous preacher and an orator in his day and how he was not impressed with the man's preaching or the man's speaking skills, but he was impressed by the man's kindness. And so consequently, he went back and continued to listen to this man's preaching, and he goes on to say that it eventually led to his conversion. He had this to say. He said, I began to love him not at first as a teacher of the truth, which I despaired finding in the church, but as a fellow creature who was kind to me. He loved him first as a fellow creature who was kind, and then as a teacher. Romans 2.4 tells us that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you know what? We're to be the kindness of God. We're to be making the gospel attractive through our kindness. You know, when I was growing up in my neighborhood, we all knew who the mean lady was. We, we, you, everybody knew who it was. You stayed out of her yard. You tried to stay as far away from her as you could. But you also knew who the nice lady was. All right, listen, we are to have reputations in our neighborhoods, in our schools, and in our church for being the compassionate, kind lady. All right, we're, we've got to be the one that they, the children want to come and, and tell us their news and show us their stuff and tell us about their lives. We're to put on kindness. There's a story that Jerry Bridges tells of Henry Clay Trumbull. Some of you may recognize the name. He, uh, if you've ever studied Covenant, he's written extensively about it. But he was also a great personal evangelist. And he tells, uh, Bridges tells the story of how one day Trumbull was uh, riding on the train and he found himself sitting next to a, a young man who was uh, drinking heavily. And the young man, he'd take a drink from the bottle and then he'd hand it, he'd offer it to Mr. Trumbull, who would graciously decline. And this went on for the ride. He'd take a drink, offer it, he'd decline. And as this went on, finally, the young man said to Mr. Trumbull, um, you must think I'm a, a pretty rough fellow. And Mr. Trumbull said to him, no. He says, I think you're a very generous-hearted fellow. And, and the kindness of Mr. Trumbull led to some very earnest discussion about the gospel. We are to put the kindness of God on display. Number five, 
the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Likewise, our displaying that kindness points a lost world toward repentance. Okay, next on our list, humility. Now, in the Greek, that is a very uh, long word, and it's made up of two words. Now, the first part of the word means to get down low, as close to the earth as you possibly can so that no one can see you. And then the second part of the word means um, to think. Okay, so we're, so we're talking about this attitude, all right? It's an attitude, it's a mindset. So number six, humility literally means to think or judge with lowliness or without arrogance, to think little of yourself. Now, in the ancient early Greeks and Romans, they didn't even have a word for humility. They despised the very idea of humility. This is very much a Christian thought. But when you think about it, our society today is becoming very much like this. Uh, researchers tell us that there is an epidemic of narcissism today. We've talked about this. We've said, they, they tell us that in the last 30 years, for Americans in general, there has been a significant increase in narcissism, that's gone up, and decrease in empathy. Okay, that's compassion. Compassion's going down, uh, narcissism's going up. They tell us 70% of students score higher on narcissism and lower on empathy that they, than the average student did 30 years ago. Now, why is that? How do you explain that? Oh, I, a lot of us know. <laughs> we, most everyone agrees that the movement of the 80s about the um, self-esteem movement, they're, they're, they very quickly blame that, and I, I lived through that. And those were the days where we um, were uh, told that self-esteem was the most important thing, that, that self-esteem was critical to any success that you were have. So little children were taught from the time they were babies little songs about how special they were. They went around singing about how special they were, and they were praised for every little thing that they did. This is the time period that we came up with the participation trophy, okay, where everybody gets, gets a, a trophy just, just for showing up. Um, this is when, this is interesting, people bragged about their kids to others in front of them. Now it's done on Facebook. Isn't now, that's another thing though. They're finding that studies are making great connections between Facebook and social media with the increase of narcissism. We live in a society where self-promotion, promotion of our children, widely accepted. But God tells us to put on humility. God tells us by definition to get as low to the ground as we can. Now, what do I mean by that? How do we go about that? Am I saying that we're just to think negatively of ourselves and think badly of ourselves? Is that how we do this? Okay, no, I want to be very clear, no. Remember, Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example. All right, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 because we're going to see this. Philippians 2 chapter 3. No, what did I say? Philippians 2 verse 3. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what it's all about. 
I, I came across an article on a business website where, where the author was writing about her experience of starting up and running a, a multi-million dollar company. And she said of all the problems and the headaches that she had, they were a walk in the park compared to her biggest problem, and that was dealing with her employees under the age of 30. And, she, and so the article was a rant. It was just a rant against millennials. This is what she said. These were a list of her grievances. She said, first of all, they're cocky. She said, I quote, I have yet to give a millennial a leadership position and have them accept their new role with humility. They're not afraid to speak to others in a condescending manner or even talk back to you. She said they take things for granted. They're unaware of how grateful they should be. She said that at, at one point in business, everyone is asked to make a copy or bring the coffee. But she says her millennials, quote, seem to think someone should have rolled out the red carpet when they popped out of school. She said they think they're exempt from rules and that they don't want to pay their dues. She ended with this, quote, I feel like breaking open the anti-suicide windows of my 21st floor office and shouting, calling all smart, stable, and humble, fashion-oriented people, can you please show up to work today? Now, her rant was against millennials, and I want to be very careful not to jump on that bandwagon because I can totally relate to everything she said. I'm ungrateful. I take things for granted. I can easily talk in a condescending manner to someone. And in the home with my husband, I can assure you, I don't like making the copies and I don't like bringing the coffee. I want the red carpet rolled out for me. So I totally get that. And yet God's word says, no, you're to put on humility. You are to treat others as more as important as yourself. And so you know what that means? That means I'm going to be bringing coffee and I'm going to be making copies and I'm going to be doing what I can to roll out the red carpet for others. Here's our next point. Humility is not thinking negatively of ourselves but is properly assessing ourselves in relation to God and others. All right? We think much, no, we, we think little of ourselves and much of God. We think little of ourselves and, and treat others as more significant. And like we said, Jesus is our example of humility. He did not think badly of himself. He emptied himself and became obedient, even to the point of the cross. Okay. Let's move on. Another thing we are to put on is gentleness. Now, this is a word we've talked about before. It is often in your Bibles translated meekness. It is, if you've heard the uh, expression power under control, this was the term that was used to describe a horse that was broken and tame and, and made useful to his um, master. For believers, to be gentle is to be under the sovereign control of God. All right, now, but there's something else that we want to see about this. Next point, number eight. Gentleness must be understood in the context of relationship because it refers to how we are to treat others. One writer described that the ancient Greeks would use this word to um, describe, the gentle to describe persons or things that had a calm, soothing quality, like having a humble, 
and kind demeanor, which could calm another person's anger. And it was significant because it was particularly talking about a person that had the power or authority to act otherwise. All right? So it's most often used to describe character in which strength and gentleness are perfectly combined. All right, now, let me give you some opposites of gentleness. Opposites would be self-assertiveness. It would be self-interest. It would be being harsh or rude or abrasive. All right? Okay, ladies, there is never, there is never a time to be rude, never an excuse to be rude, never an excuse to be abrasive. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Jesus got angry. He went into the temple. He was angry. He knocked over tables with the money changers. All right, um, he, he did. But, but he was never, uh, he was never um, rude in, the fl- in a fleshly manner. He was never abrasive in a fleshly manner. He was never self-assertive. He was always working in subjection and submission to the Father. If you want to know what gentleness looks like, read the Gospels. All right, now, sometimes people will use, and this is a good explanation, people will refer to elephants when they're thinking about gentleness because in certain parts of Asia, they're used in the logging industry. And so you have these, you know, you have these massive giants and they're able to pull up trees right from the root. They're able to carry heavy loads. They, but, but, they're, but they're calm. They're tamed. They're under the control of their masters. And so you have this strength and yet you have this um, uh, calmness and and under control. Now the opposite of that, and it makes them very useful. Now the opposite of that, think a bull in a china shop. You know, you have power, but it's not under control, and it's just got destruction. It's with destruction everywhere. All right, Paul is telling us, put on gentleness. Paul is telling us, be the tamed elephant. Okay, next. I recently had um, something come up uh, that was uh, aggravating, and my gut was to be angry. And I thought it was righteous anger, but then I found myself, you know, wanting to be self-assertive, wanting to give somebody a piece of my mind. And um, it was interesting because right about that time, I was working on this lesson, and I had every, I had much of it put together except the part on gentleness. And so I was forced to kind of do a study on gentleness as I had this in the back of my mind. And I realized that I, 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 no matter what I did and how I moved forward, I had to be sure that I was being gentle, that I was handling it gently. You see, God is gentle with me. Praise God. God is gentle with me. So I have got to be gentle with others. And, and ladies, let me tell you, this is, this is so important for us as women because we have been told that, that we're to be self-assertive. There are websites and magazines devoted to teaching women how to be self-assertive. We're being told that gentleness is outdated and it doesn't serve us well. Okay, ladies, that's a lie. That is a lie. Jesus is, was gentle. We are to be gentle. All right, next, we are to put on patience. Macrothumia, that was the, the Greek word for that. And sometimes the Bible will use the word forbearance. And there's two different words for patience in the Bible. This is the patience that is primarily toward people, okay, as opposed to circumstances. All right, now God 
is described as patient. All right? He is majestically, graciously patient in that he restrains his wrath, his righteous wrath. Okay? He restrains it against obnoxious, obstinate, irritating, annoying, rebellious people. And we are to put that on display. Now, how do we do that? Well, by being patient with all the obstinate and obnoxious and irritating, annoying, rebellious people in our lives. Where to put it on? J. Vernon McGee used to define uh, patience as, this patience, as long burning. It means you have a long fuse. Lawrence Richards described it as, as this. He said, it is the ability not to lose patience when people are foolish but to grow, not to grow irritable when they seem unteachable. It is the ability to accept the folly, the perversity, the blindness, the ingratitude of men, and still remain gracious, and still to toil on. Oh, let me ask you something. Are you patient with your husbands? Are you patient with your coworkers? When I was uh, newly married, I worked at a bank, and I had to work with customers all day, and I worked very hard to be kind and patient with each one. And then I would come home and blast my husband. <coughs> you know, at work I could do it. It was my job, I was being paid for it. But then I'd come home and I'd be tired, and I'd be out of patience. But you see, Paul says, oh, you're not out of patience. Beloved, you're loved, you're holy, you're chosen. Put on patience. Put it on because you can. Okay. Now, what's the opposite of patience? Well, the opposite would be taking revenge. It would be retaliating. One writer said patience is the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. It's the ability to hold your feeling in restraint or bear up under the oversights and wrongs afflicted by others. Now, do you do that? Exploding in anger, complaining, being bitter. Okay, these are the opposite of patience, and we are to be dressed in patience, all right? People should be able to look at us and characterize us as patient people. Now, will we uh, mess up? Well, yes, yes, we will. Um, and Paul Washer has a neat way of explaining this, and I'm going to try to do him justice because I, I was remembering this from, um, from memory. But he gave, he gave it an explanation, explanation like this. He said, suppose that you were to follow me around my farm all day and watch me work. And you watch me do the various different things. And then at one point, I am uh, doing something, and I hit my finger with a hammer. Or maybe you hit my finger with a hammer. And, and you know, I explode, and I get angry, and I get mad. And, and just at that time, you take my picture. Now you've got a picture of me losing my temper and being explosive. All right, now what if you were to take a video of me and follow me throughout the day? Okay, what would the video version be like? Would it be a series of mad explosions and being angry and being unkind and being abrasive? You know, what would the video version be? Or would that one explosion, would that be the exception on the video? All right, Paul is saying that we are to be characterized by patience. Paul is saying that the video version needs to be patience. 
The video version needs to be all of these things. Patience, kindness, humility, gentleness. All right, next verse. Verse 14, we're jumping to verse 14. Verse 14 says, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. All right, okay, love here is being pictured. It's the bond of unity. Okay, that means it's either like the belt or the girdle that was holding the whole outfit together, or possibly it was an overcoat holding all things together. But it's love is keeping everything in place. All right, love is, we've said this before, it is the crowning jewel of Christianity. Now, we're going to be displaying love as we do all these things. All right, but in the end, we have to be seen as people who love. Jonathan Shore He wrote a piece for the Huffington Post entitled this, Listen Up Evangelicals, What Non-Christians Want You to Hear. And in it, he described doing some research for a book that he's writing where he put out notices all over Craigslist asking for people, non-believers, to submit a short personal statement they would like Christians to read. Now, he made it very clear he was not looking to bash Christians. He was looking to be well-meaning. Now, he said that within three days, he had over 300 emails. And he went on to say that it was the most, reading them was the most, one of the most depressing things that he had ever done. He said uh, he expected to see a pattern of anger. But here's what he wrote. If you boiled down to one, the overall sentiment most often expressed in the non-believer's statement, it would be this. Why do Christians hate us so much? Why do Christians hate us so much? That, no wonder he was so depressed. You see, that's the exact opposite of what they should be saying. They should be saying things like this. Listen, we don't agree on anything But I have to admit, they sure love me. Or boy, they sure love each other. Or you know what? They've got some crazy ideas about politics, but boy, they sure love my kids. Boy, they sure are the most loving people in our neighborhood. Okay, we have got to be known as loving. Now, what do I mean by that? We've talked about this before in class. We're going to just go through this quickly. There are different kinds of love. We're going to focus on agape because that's what this one is. Number nine on your paper. Agape love is unconditional and biblically refers to the love that God is, that God shows, and that God enables in his children. All right, it is a supernatural love. We do not have the capacity to generate this on our own. All right, next point, number 10. Agape may involve emotion, but it must always involve action. Do you see a pattern here? Pattern for action. Now, it's not sentiment or feelings. It can certainly involve those, but agape love is demonstrated. Now, what is demonstrated? That's our next point. What is the action involved? Number 11, agape denies self, but actively, purposely seeks the welfare of the one that is loved. All right, agape denies self, that's self-sacrifice, and everything about agape love is sacrificial. We deny ourselves to benefit another. All right, now why is that? Well, because agape love is, it's the message of the gospel. 
Jesus, he left heaven, he came to earth, he took on the form of man, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross so that we might be saved. That's self-sacrifice. That's the laying down of your life for another. That, that's, that's agape love. All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Famous story. We want to see something from it. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road. When he saw, saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Go, you go, and do likewise. All right, stories are a wonderful way of helping us to remember things. And if you want a way to remember the, the six things that we just went over, those, those six things that the book of Colossians tells us to put on, remember this story. Because this man, the Samaritan, he does everything that we just talked about. He is compassionate, he is gentle, he is kind, he is patient, he is humble. He is completely sacrificial in the way that he helps that injured man. He does all the things that we have just talked about. Now, do you know what that means? That means that if we are to be holy women, this is what it will look like. If we're to pursue godliness, this is what it will look like. There will be sacrificial love. There will be sacrificial humility, sacrificial gentleness and kindness. Now, will we be women that will be, be known for reading our Bibles and praying and go to church, going to church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are graces that God gives us to help us to be holy. Those are graces for our inner man. And we need to be doing them. But listen, a badge that's displayed. A badge is displayed. And our badge is to be Love. Here's our last point. The badge of a holy life will be sacrificial love. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we, we read this and, and 
and wonder how can, how can we even begin to be like this? Oh, but Father, you've clothed us in holiness and you have made us to be holy and loved and, and by your spirit you help us to do these things. And I pray, Father, I pray that we'll be women that will be set apart because we put on Christ. That people will be able to identify us as your child because we, we look like you. In the name of Jesus, we, we just ask, oh Father, we pray that you'll just, uh, that your presence will be known and felt as the discussion takes place and that you will guide and direct us all to know how to better wear you. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.